Good morning, Luanda. Good afternoon, Doha. And good evening, Fuzhou. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue Senior Editor Valentina Calvi to discuss Saudi Arabia's energy ambitions and the destruction of a critical Ukrainian dam. It's all coming up. Morning, Val. How are you? Morning, Ethan. Oh, good. Thank you. How are you? Doing just fine. So we are going nuclear this morning, aren't we? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. And to do that, we're heading to the sunshine-soaked kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Now, um, you know, when most people think about Saudi Arabia, they think of oil, which makes sense considering they're the leader of OPEC. But the kingdom's millennial crown prince... Mohammed bin Salman, uh, has been on a tireless mission to change that. He wants the kingdom to be associated with cutting-edge tech and modernity. Um, and to do that, he wants to start cutting Saudi Arabia's dependence on oil and focus on nuclear energy, which him and, you know, a lot of other people are starting to, th- to see as the real fuel of the future. I mean, when you say Saudi Arabia is dependent on oil, you mentioned their position in OPEC. I know they're the world's largest oil exporter, but is it, it's a large part of their domestic energy mix too? Oh, absolutely. And like big part is really an understatement. So in 2021, uh, oil accounted for 61% of Saudi's domestic energy consumption, while natural gas accounted for the other 30, no, 39%. So if you're good at maths, you'll already have calculated that that's 100% of Saudi Arabia's domestic energy. Dude, I hadn't done that calculation, but, but thank you for that. <laughs> you never know. Um, I don't know what your math grade was, so I might as well, you know, assist. Um, basically, 100% of the Saudi energy mix is fossil fuels. But there is a catch. And, and what's that? So Saudi Arabia has promised to generate half of its power from renewable sources by 2030, get that percentage up to 100% by 2040, and then go completely net zero by 2060. Um, you know, very big goals, very big aspirations on that green side. So part of their plan is to rely on the kingdom's virtual endless supply of sunshine, with solar panels. But the other side, um, the other side of the equation is nuclear power plants. The kingdom says, you know, it has the uranium to power them. So all that's really missing is some foreign assistance, you know, the that foreign know-how. Right. And who is it turning to for that foreign assistance to help them, you know, build these build these nuclear power plants? Yeah. Well, the first candidate and the most obvious one um, is the U.S. Saudi Arabia has been asking for help in the U.S., which has always been a security and economic ally, you know, for the kingdom. You know, I think we've covered a lot of reasons why that partnership has suffered in recent years, to put it that way. Um, you know, we've got the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, President Biden's promise to turn the crown prince into pariah, uh, and most recently, Saudi Arabia's stance on the war in Ukraine. But for the most part, that relationship has endured, at least on the practical level. Um, and Saudi Arabia has given the U.S. a pretty compelling reasons, like, you know, to lend them a hand. Um, they've hinted that cooperation on a nuclear energy 
would be a prerequisite for any agreement to normalize relations with Israel. And that's a really long-standing goal for U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. So right. that's a really compelling reason for President Biden and any other president after him. Right. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the wealthiest and I don't know, probably the, the most influential Arab country. So I know the U.S. and Israel have been really desperate for years to get them on board the Abraham Accords, the set of uh, normalization agreements with Morocco, Bahrain, others. So why not take this opportunity to do mm -hmm. that? It's right in front of them. Yeah, I mean, helping Saudi Arabia wean off fossil fuels would be a huge feather in the cap for American environmental activists. Right. Absolutely. That's another good reason. Yeah, um, but it's really not that simple. Um, there are some big reasons why the U.S. Um, isn't rolling out top secret nuclear energy tech to the Saudis. You know, um, the big overarching concern here is that once Saudi Arabia learns how to process and enrich uranium for civilian use... You know, there are not too many steps then from converting it for military use. And it's not like the crown prince has given the U.S. that many reasons to take him at his word, you know, that such a peaceful, you know, nuclear program will just stay that way. Um, and if they ever did try and build a nuclear bomb, say, in order to match, uh, you know, a regional rival Iran, they'd already have a highly advanced you know, they already have right now a highly advanced missile program. And then all they need to do is just, you know, strap that nuclear warhead onto it. I see your point. I see it. I see now that that sounds like something Israel, which is, of course, the only nuclear superpower in the Middle East. They probably wouldn't be too happy about that either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Israel's energy minister said just the other day, by the way, that they wouldn't endorse any normalization plan that includes U.S. assistance for a Saudi nuclear program. Like, they've made that pretty clear. Well, I mean, Val, earlier you said that there were multiple potential candidates to help the Saudis with this program. Yeah. So the other candidates are our usual suspects, you know, old friends, China and Russia. Um, which is a concern from a regular, regulatory standpoint. You know, um, Saudi Arabia has tried to assuage American concerns by promising them significant oversight over the nuclear program operations. And they might be promising the same to China and Russia. But, you know, it's, you know, I would say relatively safe to say that maybe their ex inspection regimes wouldn't be quite as strict. Um, so the U.S. isn't uh, you know, is pretty worried about that and will almost certainly try and avoid it at all costs, you know, you know that new budding partnership. Um, and, you know, look, I, I, at the end of the day, I think Saudi Arabia will end up with a nuclear power plant. You know, that could be sooner or later. But, you know, their neighbors uh, in the United Arab Emirates uh, built one with U.S. assistance a few years ago. So I think it's kind of inevitable that it will happen for Saudi too. What's harder to predict here is who will help them do it um, and what a Saudi nuclear program of any kind will mean for keeping the lid on rival Iran's nuclear program. And harder to predict still is how many of, you know, other countries will learn the lesson from the Saudis that the best way to get things done, you know, in the nuclear realm, but we're talking, you know, uh, in general here, is to play the US and its rivals off of each other as tensions uh, and, ge and geopolitical tensions increase. And with all things nuclear proliferation, like once it starts, it's really hard to stop it and rein it back in. 
Today's show is sponsored by Roka. We really like newsletters, and we've got another recommendation that you've got to check out, The Current by Roka News. Here's what we like about it. It was founded by people who don't like the negative, partisan, and alarmist style of news. It favors facts over opinions, and it tells you what you need to know for the day so you can hold your own at happy hour. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So next up, we have a story that is still sort of breaking as of right now. Yes, uh, and it's important to start there since we don't really have all the details, but Here's what we know so far. Um, early Tuesday, a major hydroelectric dam in a region controlled by Russia in southern Ukraine was breached. So this dam, which is called the Nova Kakovka, uh, became operational in 1956 and was responsible for creating a massive reservoir that holds, well, actually held at this point, as much water as this great salt lake in Utah. Um, so that's a lot of water. This reservoir is a critical source of water for southern Ukraine's drinking and agricultural water systems. And interestingly enough, um, its waters are also used to cool the reactors at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is just next door. Um, And this nuclear power plant has been a major point of concern throughout the war. But luckily, it doesn't look like the plant, the nuclear power plant is at risk right now. Although the hydroelectric hydroelectric plant adjacent to the Kakovka Dam was obviously destroyed. Um, and the dam's destruction also forced around 16,000 people from their homes and um, is leading a ton of flooding downstream from the reservoir in cities like Kherson. Um, and, you know, there are plenty, thousands of people who are have been given the order to evacuate. And so that's that, those are the facts. That's what we know. Wh- yeah. What don't we know yet? Uh, well, basically everything else. And the truth is, we really don't know how the dam was destroyed, which is perhaps the most interesting uh, question to be asked, or whether if, you know, it was destroyed intentionally at all. Not, what do you mean not destroyed intentionally at all? How, how so? Well, the dam has been very poorly managed by Russia. Um, the basin was so overfilled that water was starting to flow over the top of the dam. And satellite imagery shows that the structure was partially damaged even before Tuesday. Um, personally, I think it's more likely that the destruction was a result of military error or foul play, though. What's the case for military error? So that's the case Russia is trying to make. They say that Ukraine has been firing artillery in the direction of the dam. Um, which is situated at on or very close to the front line um, and basically accidentally struck it. So it was an accident by Ukraine. And Russia's defense minister even went further uh, in his attempt to pin this blame on Ukraine. He said that they intentionally blew up the dam in order to flood the city of Kherson, uh, which Ukraine took uh, just last year. Uh, and make it easier to defend with fewer troops and equipment, basically. So it was a strategic uh, move. Okay, that's a bit of three-dimensional chess, isn't it? Uh, I'm guessing Ukraine disputes that Russian claim. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, in the strongest possible terms. Um, and Ukraine, Ukraine's allies vehemently dispute it, too. The EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, called the attack a new dimension of Russian atrocities and said it might be a violation of international law and others have even called it a war crime. Um, and the case against Russia seems to be a bit stronger. 
Um, analysts say that Ukraine's long-anticipated you know, counteroffensive may have begun over the weekend, so very recently. Um, and so it's not hard to imagine Russia using the chaos of the dam destruction, not only to slow Ukrainian troop movements into Russian-held territory on the other side of the river, um, but also to force them to reallocate military resources um, towards the cleanup effort. So if the Russians were hoping to stall Ukraine's offensive in its tracks, this seems like the perfect way to do it. Right. And if it was Russia, and let me say this again, we don't know for certain yet. Um, but if it was Russia, I think it shows how big of an advantage they have in a few key areas. So one, they've shown plenty of willingness to violate the rules of war to gain an advantage. Uh, and two, they're not really fighting on their own soil. So, you know, they don't really care as much about destroying the infrastructure they encounter. You know, I mean, a lot of that infrastructure was built in the Soviet area. So I think top Kremlin officials might even think that it belongs to Moscow anyways. And it just all goes to show how hard Ukraine's mission of expelling Russia from its borders will be. Thanks, Val. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Two Australian citizens who were sentenced to death in Vietnam were granted clemency during Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's visit to Hanoi. Experts say the release of the prisoners is an important step towards solidifying relations between the two countries. Colombian President Gustavo Petro's closest advisor stepped down last Friday after local media revealed she ordered a wiretap of her son's nanny. Petro, whose approval has plummeted in recent months, denies any prior knowledge of the scheme. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, it's hard not to be intrigued by a good old-fashioned Cold War-era spy story. And on Monday, one of the most notorious spies in U.S. history passed away. But you're going to want to check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what sort of information he was responsible for sharing. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Placken. See you on Friday. <laughs>